Drumming is a universal language. Everyone can and does create rhythm. You don't need a drum kit. You don't even need sticks. It can be your hands on your legs, clicking your tongue inside your mouth, wooden spoons on pots and pans, footsteps. It's the musical equivalent of jumpers for goalposts. This is Flashbang Wallet, The Interviews. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Flashbang Wallop, the interviews. Uh, this week, it is Andy Parisi. Andy is a musician, a drummer, composer. He's also a writer, an actor. And we talk about, amongst many other things, his career as a, a session drummer, and primarily about his work on Morrissey's first three albums. So he worked on Viva Hate, Bona Drag and Kill Uncle. We talk about him working with Bucks Fizz, who I think are criminally underrated as a band. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but anyway, here is Flashbang Wallop, the interview with Andy Parisi. Some story of when I was uh, very young, my mother had gone shopping and she'd left my pram outside the greengrocers and she went in and um, when she came out she was she saw me kind of moving my body around and almost like um, it was a little it wasn't just a baby way it looked a little too unnatural to use the word that might have been used then yeah um, and uh, I was singing yeah, 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 yeah. She really, she was a bit frightened because she thought, well, where's he heard that from and why is he making that movement? So in terms of the first thing I actually hit, I can remember striking things in the back garden of where we lived in, in uh, Witten, which is Twickenham, just near the rugby ground, mm. and uh, enjoying the sounds of things. It was certainly, there was an old rusted rake I used to hit a lot, but I wasn't actually that my first exposure wasn't through, through sound so much as vision, watching drum, drummers and seeing drum kits. Mm. For reasons I can't explain, when I was about seven, uh, the primary school I was at, they had this toy drum kit. And I'd obviously been watching The Monkees on television and had seen um, Mickey Delenn's playing and all the rest of it. And I, I saw this kit and I just felt an immediate affinity with it. It was like, this is something I can do. And I tried to pour it and get it out and all the rest of it. And I, I was at a primary school with nuns and uh, they were very stern. And in those days, covered with you know black and white 
Whipples, it was mm. quite severe pre um, uh, Vatican II. It was Catholic, obviously, and uh, and uh, she, she saw me trying to get this drum kit out and and just oh, put that back, put that back. How dare you, horrible little boy! So I, I, the fact that it was being put away made me attracted to it even more. It's so forbidden, so, forbidden, yeah. yeah, forbidden. And I just became fascinated by what people were able to do. So um, I then started listening to a lot of my brother's records. This would have been from a period from about 66 when I was five years old. I started sort of listening to my eldest brother's Beatles records, my third eldest brother's Jimi Hendrix records later on. And he also had things like The Doors, The Band, um, Led Zeppelin. And uh, so I picked up an awful lot of stuff. But at that point, what I was hearing was drumming and it was and I was watching it on television occasionally and I was just thinking this is incredible I remember watching um Jimi Hendrix's drummer um Mitch Mitch yeah Mitch he was he was like he was just it, I, think, I don't know if it was all along the watchtower or, or something like that but it was it was like the drumming was was unbelievably complicated and I thought what how is he doing all of that and then I, I then saw Cream I think it was on top of the pops and um he was doing something very similar, Ginger Baker was sub filling in and it was like, I didn't understand the concepts of jazz or where that technique had come from. Mm. What I was seeing were people like Ringo, Ginger, Mitch and others, they were like singing with this weird instrument. But then the flip side to that would have been watching the monkeys who were kind of miming badly. I mean, Mickey DeLenz mm. actually could play the drums, mm. but, uh, or can rather, but um, he, he was having to sort of uh, play the drums and sing uh, when uh, the geezer at the front who died passed away recently was, wasn't doing the singing mm. um, and so that was sort of I, I could see that there was an entertainment element and uh, a professional element to it and that drew me in closer and was, so this was before you'd even hit a drum in anger then? yes I mean I, I hadn't got to that stage I, I, I'd, I remember the very first set of drumsticks I got I'd made myself at school we had a um, we had a, 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 it was like an early um, sort of uh, woodwork class and we'd been, we'd, we'd been asked to make uh, some, some kind of beveled edge to a, to, to a stick and I picked up two of these sticks toward the end of the class and rapidly started to make a drumstick out of one and then the other. Mm. That was the first time I came back from school with these two drumsticks and started hitting things and immediately my mother uh, jumped on it and said what is that dreadful noise and it was kind of uh, that was kind of parked for a little while mm. so it, it, it was bubbling away certainly in my um, early years and, and I assume with your mother's reaction there that would again make it even more attractive to precisely and but in fact it was it, it would be really odd like I get up very early in the morning and I put on a record by uh, the Beatles or and I'd be listening to it and I'd turn up the volume and I'd have like my, one of my brothers would come down and say, take that off, it's too noisy. It was always like, what is that? My dad was from Greenock, mm. Glasgow, and uh, he, he was an academic in London, but he would, uh, oh, God, that's terrible sound that you're making. So it was, it was very funny. Um, so there was a, a real kind of, we can't let Andrew go in this direction. Mm. This can't happen. Uh, they were also, as devout Catholics, they were terrified that this music 
was a kind of gateway to a loosening of morality which they wouldn't want mm. their youngest to be exposed to. I mean, of course they were right. And they were right. <laughs> and in fact, uh, you know, as it, as it transpired, um, it became something that indeed, you know, led down some of those paths. Which, um, but what can you do? You know, it's, mm. that's, I've definitely felt the tug. Mm. Um, so there was a little bit of that. And then I think the first song, I mean, there was another thing I should just add about rhythm. I wasn't hitting stuff, but at night when I went to sleep, I was doing this movement um, to all sorts of songs. You know, like I'd have, um, there was a grosser jack, grosser jack. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a novelty song first played by John Bale on his show in 67, I think it was. And uh, it was a lovely, it was te teenage, um, teenage opera extract from a teenage opera I don't know who who, who wrote it Grosser Jack Grosser Jack get off your back go into town don't let them down oh no no the people that live in but there'll be songs like that and um, yeah Fun's of the Stones anything that was in the charts and uh, you know Boots Are Made For Walking was another one that's right yeah Mm. white a shade of pale but to, in order to get to sleep it was really weird I used to do this thing where I'd lie on the bed and just go um, so Guru Sir Jack Guru Sir Jack is it true what daddy says you won't come <laughs> and of course this would be making a noise it would go straight down into the living room and <coughs> 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 which must have sounded to them like something else even yeah. though I was still quite young and again, it would be the oh, what's that terrible noise that coming through? And my mum would come. What are you doing, Andrew? And I said, and she could see I was basically in a complete haze. You know, I was in yeah. my own world. I was essentially drumming myself to sleep or rhythmatizing myself to sleep. Mm. And then I would speed the tempo up depending on the tune. Um, I think there was one I just remembered. Was it? Um, uh, I think it was. I think it was. I, might be Dance to the Music or Needles and Pins, but uh, yeah, Needles and Pins. Oh yeah, uh, the Searchers. The, the searchers. Was it the Searchers? Or the, or the, wasn't the Hollies, I don't think. It was the Searchers, yeah. Needles and Pins. Uh, dee -dee. Yeah. So from their perspective, they were hearing a drummer being born essentially through his device, through his method of trying to get to sleep. Mm. Um, but they were just, <laughs> I mean, it must have been weird now that I think about it. So that was how my rhythm was evolving. I was mm. listening to these songs and then I was physically moving my body backwards and forwards. Such behaviour now might be seen as uh, something that was on the, um, on the spectrum perhaps. Mm. I don't know. And the irony of all of this is that my father was a child psychologist and even he couldn't figure he it out. So that was weird. Yeah. It was just, oh, that terrible noise. You've got to get him to stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. So when did you finally use your drumstick? Well, the, I, th I think the very first time I got to the, the stick was really, I mean, you know, through school I've been listening to a lot of great 70s tracks, um, pop songs, which were really intricate and interesting. Um, I think one of those was the ELOs, wasn't it? Uh, 10, 105, 38, Overture. I mm. loved that song. I just listened to mm. it over and over and over again. And um, I started just to tap, I think, was with my hands. And uh, that's really how it began. But by the time I got to 14, um, I, I started to develop an interest in it. I thought, I'm really getting curious about this a bit more. So at that time, we used to wear stack heels to school. 
um, because we all wanted to look like um, uh, David Bowie or you know whoever else was sort of hip at that time ELO mm. um, yes and um, they were all wearing these huge stacked heels and I had a pair of them and I cut the heels off both of these shoes turned them the other way around and had two ready pads and mm. so using my personally made uh, drumsticks I keep one for the hi-hat and one for the snare so that's how I started mm. and of course the usual interruptions often from brothers who'd left home say why are you doing that you know mm. but in fact it was it was that, that that started me off so with interruptions those were my first strikes in anger if you like in real I'm gonna take control of this roughly about the age of 13 14 and uh, hitting these <laughs> these stack heel ends really hard. Well, I, sp I suppose with that then, you're starting to learn about precision as well, because that's not a big s surface area to, to no. hit. And if and no, if you lose wasn't. control, you're gonna miss the. Well, it, it was it was it was. I think at this stage, I was tr I was emulating what I was seeing, trying to pick up what I was hearing, and then copying it back to this. And I obviously was I had no teacher at that point, mm. so I didn't really know quite what I was doing. I mean, ultimately, the thing that turned me onto rhythm was really, I mean, because I loved all the all the drummers that were around at that time were brilliant, you know, because you had these two elements, as I said, you had the showbiz drummers, but you also had the, there was a showbiz element, there was also a professional element, mm. but you had these things melded together and people like John Bonham and especially Ringo Starr, who is, should not be in any way underrated. The guy was a genius. Mm. Yeah. I mean, an absolute genius mm. in just being able to take a simple style and then turn it into something that just wasn't just musical, it was part of the song, it was part of the structure. So, but strangely, the thing that really hooked me was um, Casey and the Sun, this is going to sound really embarrassing, but Casey and the Sunshine Band had a record out, an album out 75, it's an eponymous I think, and um, they had a song on there called Get Down Tonight, which was a quite a big hit mm. at the time. I think it was the follow-up to Shake, um, That's the Way I Like It. Mm. And I, st I started listening to this and thinking, what the fuck is this? This is like, the groove is so infectious. The sounds, everything, it's utterly beautiful. Mm. Uh, the guitar that had been sped up to twice as fast as this weird instrument. But most of all, it was what the drummer was doing. Baby, baby, let's get together. I have and you and we can all get together and it was, I thought, whoa! Then I started playing manically to anything I could find that had that sort of infectious groove. Mm. So it it's went to people like James Brown, and I was there was one uh, particular drum loop I did, which was off Casey and the Sunshine Band's LP, which was called Let It Go. And there was a drum break in the middle of that that I, I just spent I must have spent three months trying to work it out. And the sort of goes. <laughs> one of those mm. but in fact then when I checked out James Brown's records I heard that it was Clive Stubblefield who was doing a lot of that stuff and the breaks which of course would later turn up in samples mm. um, and we've now heard more of the components of those records through the jump drumming than we ever did at the time it's yeah, astonishing yeah. really yeah so 
the groove setters were fascinating to me, but equally the English drummers and some of the American session drummers on, on tracks like, you know, Wichita Lineman, I think that was Hal Blaine. There were also, um, there was another guy whose name escapes me, Jim Gordon, who played on a lot of tracks coming out of Los Angeles at that time. What would be regarded as sort of chewing gum pop that was emanating from America at that time. Mm. A lot of really beautiful stuff. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was it, that was the, the, the beginning of the drum kit. Mm. Um, with those two things and also the fact that I had a pair of headphones and I could just focus and concentrate on groove yeah. um, and try and get all these three things sort of intertwined together and work so that was the point where I think I started to to move on up and it was just then that I left school and went to sixth form college mm. in Richmond and then I was doing a degree in engineering uh, which I hated and wanted to get out of and I looked at uh, one part of the the course was I had to do music, three instruments for, as part of the music course, and I I went to the music room and I saw the drum kit all set up there. And no one was playing it. I just thought, oh, yeah, there was, we, here we go. I was hooked. Yeah, and so I signed up for everything I could: big band, wind band practice. Even though I couldn't really play very well or read, and the my teacher Reg Skiro, who taught me to play, was also the drummer. In the big band, he was the main teacher. Bye bye, darling. Thanks. This is Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi. Goodbye, Chris. Hello, goodbye. Um, that's my wife. And and uh, so he he taught me how to play music. And of course, what the big band opened up was the backstory to what I'd been watching and growing up with. Mm. All the '60s drummers had been influenced by big band jazz and jazz players from yeah. the 40, from the '30s, '40s, and '50s. So what they were doing, which looked so attractive, were evolutions of all this stuff so now suddenly it was like wow you actually this stuff is written as manuscript I mean that blew my mind I thought what the fuck do I do so I I had to learn to read and understand bar counts and know when the drums are coming and read top lines that was a fantastic but very very terrifying uh, in at the deep end experience because um, I don't know if you remember a scene in that um, of what's that Damien Chazelle hit film from a few years ago about the drummer learning, um, a drummer in college being um, brutalised by a sadistic music teacher. Yeah. It's a terrific film. Yeah. Um, and that will probably be showing us part of the accompanying yes. stuff at, at home, actually. But, but, um, but in the big band, um, the one element in the big band that has to absolutely be completely reliable is the drums. Mm. Because it gives everyone, even more than the conductor, it gives everyone the sense of comfort knowing I can play to this. I can. So if the drumming yeah. loses it or the tempo is out in any way, you're the first person that the band leader goes to. And in some degree of exasperation. Mm. Because it's like, for fuck's sake, all you've got to do is keep time. You know, it's, it's like, that's all you've got to do. Ding, ding, da, ding, 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 ding. Because I'm doing that, trying to keep time with relatively early sort of technique and trying to read and pick phrases off and I'm missing them because I don't count the bars properly. And so the whole thing is a horrifying, embarrassing mess. I suppose with a, a big band drummer as well, there is that pressure to um, augment, you know, brass yeah. hits. And yes, that's that right. Stuff. Which are all written above the stave as yeah. you're going. So you might have, for example, eight bars, let's say in the middle of a, of a, of a bassy song, let's say Queen B or something like that. And you'd be playing along, and, and there would be the second time you went through those eight bars, there'd be 
brass sort of tops, you know. And I, I, you know, in the early stages, I was getting those wrong. And I, this, 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 uh, the guy who was running this band, um, Julian Joseph, was actually the pianist oh, really? in it uh, just before I got there. He just left. And he was, I was constantly getting, you know, in this early period, I was getting this cold eye stare. Like, what the fuck are you doing? And it was terrifying because I'd never been in that situation to be humiliated, mm. essentially. If you can't keep time, let your teacher do it. But it's messing it up for all of us. And then in those days, teachers did that. You know, now you would be probably kicked out of college talking mm. like that unless you sounded nice and friendly and collegiate. Mm. But back then, you know, a lot of the guys who were playing in this band were professionals. And they were used to being treated that way, you know. If you want to play properly, you've got to fucking stick with it. So that was quite, that was a really, like an acid bath of uh, an initiation ceremony, yeah, yeah. really. And I, which I never quite, I never quite recovered from, in a sense. It, it was terrifying. Because you suddenly felt a deep responsibility for every aspect of it. Mm. And then, the, as I got better, I realised that some of the musicians weren't as great as I initially thought they were. So I would start moving tempos up slightly and then the band leader would say and I'd know it was slowing down but he obviously realised that these guys couldn't play comfortably at certain phrases mm. and, yeah. so yeah it was a, a so steep was, learning curve he was catering for the weaker links of yeah. the band rather than pushing them on but, but I was the weakest link at the very beginning so I was getting the full blast yeah um, I remember I, I'm a sax player I, yeah. and um I joined a regional big band um, when I was 14, I think. And I remember my first time there. And I'd, I'd been improvising and playing playing with this, this pianist and just learning how to improvise by ear. <clears throat> and um, so I auditioned and got into this band. My first, first uh, rehearsal, there was a, a sax player behind me. And during this, this tune, she played a, a, a solo. And I was thinking, how is she doing that? How on earth is she doing that? And she was using these beautiful phrases that were going in and amongst all these um, really complex chord changes, and it was so demoralising because I knew that I was gonna. Have to, I was doing it by ear, and, and you know I was making some nice sounds, and and um, it took me about three or four weeks before I realised that it was all written down note by note. Her her. And so I gave myself such a hard time <laughs> yeah. um, for about a month um, thinking, oh God, she's about the same age as me and she's amazing. And it was all written down. Yeah. And, you know, so you could you practice just... it. It wasn't improvised. It was actually there on the page. And yeah. I, I, I think that uh, this, the, the, the terrifying thing for me was I felt that I had to make rapid progress in a very short space of time. Mm. I'd had a pretty unpleasant time at school. I didn't like it very much. I was fine, but I didn't like it very much. It was a grammar school, but it just wasn't a very good one. So mm. it was a bit yucky. Um, so I, uh, I felt I had to compress a lot into those two or three years. So mm. I became obsessive and quite depressed when I would see someone playing really well or went to you know, watch another drummer. I think, how the is he doing that? How is he fucking doing that? Mm. And I used to go up and ask them afterwards, and they'd show. Well, they'd slow it down. Say, well, it's sort of like this. But, but how? But how to fucking slow it right down? You know, I don't get it. I don't get it. That used to really frustrate me. Mm. So um, that was that was all part of it. It was an angst uh, being at the centre of attention, but also uh, in a big band, but also feeling that one wasn't. 
quite confident and on top of it. Mm. But at the other end of the scale was realizing that there was always someone out there better than you, more, yeah. pro- more experienced than you and older than you. And it was that that I was chasing after. I had yeah. to get past all those points. Yeah. So were you able to then? Yeah. Um, I think the, the interesting thing was about halfway through college, I bought a drum kit and um, I, I, it, was a, it was a really, it was about a hundred quid or something, 50 quid, a hundred quid, mm. but it came complete with cymbals. It sounded terrible, but the point is I had now the full Monty and I put it up in the loft of our house, which was a semi-detached, you know, one built in the 20s. Mm. And uh, I started to play it. I also built a little sort of studio console, very primitive thing, but just so I could record some of what I was doing. And um, I'd be playing up there and, and I'd come down the stairs. And my mother at this point was, you know, reached exasperation, but she just said to me one of the funniest things, which was, Andrew, the noise you make up there is worse than anything I ever heard during the Blitz. <laughs> I just thought, blimey. You know that's a pretty, pretty steep. So they hated the noise because it came down from the ceiling, mm. um, and of course it wasn't very practiced or experienced. So I was in a an environment where they didn't understand. My dad was a he was a department head at London University. He was an examiner. He was a biopsychologist, so child psychologist, um, and he was he had these three jobs and would come back to this noise, and just like cut caught with it anymore and then my mum would try and talk me out of it she'd get my older brothers to come I remember one of my brothers came round and said you do realise Andrew that drums are going to be a thing of the past soon because they've just come up with sampling they're going to be able to sample a sound which will sound just like the drums you're hitting and very soon it will all be played by computers this was 1978 79 I think yeah. and it was like yeah so what you know I I, I I was interested, but I could see there was a an agenda, which was we've got to get him to stop playing. So this was, it, it was profound, um, and therefore I carried on, yeah, <laughs> which absolutely. is the only thing I could do really. Um, so then I got out of, uh, but by the time I left college, uh, I'd left I think to join a band at that stage, and I was pretty quite proficient, and had a kit of sorts. What was the name of the band? Oh God, it was it, it was called um, Three Point Turn. And it was a reggae, sort of a dub reggae band, a sort of dub reggae meets just a post-punk thing. Mm-hmm. Trying to think who the, the best, I can't think, like sort of Deaf School or one of those groups, you know. Um, right. Um, just very interesting lyrics, quite subversive. Um, and this was what, t- late 70s? 70s, 79, 80. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, I was as a professional, I was mixing up as much work as I could. So I'd be working in hotel lobbies, playing drums. So I'd mastered all those rhythms. I can all the oh, yeah, yeah. And that yeah. all that kind of thing, brushes, everything, light jazz. And then I was playing uh, sort of reggae stuff with this band. But the other band I had was a jazz rock group, and I was fascinated by fusion mm. because I loved jazz and I love the way that a certain artist like um, you know certainly Chick Career and Return to Forever mm. and uh, Weather Report yeah, these yeah. groups had come along they were just melding it in a, such a provocative way mm. it was like unavoidable you know you had to be a part of it and I arrived of course with perfect timing just at the point when it was going out of fashion and you had punk arriving which was brilliant of course in its, in its way um, mm. and then post-punk which was kind of a deconstruction of that so everything from Elvis Costello onwards uh, XTC I thought they were brilliant but mm. you could hear all these 
these new uh, evolutions, but they were in a form of rock music, English rock, if you like. And uh, it was at that point that that's where I sort of went. I didn't quite know what I was doing. I wanted to play jazz and be in a fusion band, but no one was into fusion anymore. It was over. Mm. This was the new thing to do. And it was at that point I left, uh, you know, I, I was, I, I was, I, I did I think I was in a, this group, as I said, three-point term. And then I just, I went into my own studio up in the loft and just kept working and working on stuff and expanding the studio, expanding what I'd listened to and, you know, trying to make the drums more precise. And this was the period where I practiced intensely mm-hmm. um, all the time. So, like, um, so most of the early 80s, actually. Um, were you getting any, any tuition at that point as well? I was still getting tuition up to the point where I left the college in 1980 from Reg Skiro. Um, and I would come back to see him for lessons afterwards. But really after that, I was sort of on my own. So I was working off books as much as I could get on video mm. and watching other drummers. Yeah. Um, I was pretty good by then, um, but I just, I still felt, I was trapped between this light touch jazz thing and this really heavy thing. And, and in the eighties at that time, the music started to evolve very rapidly. You had groups like Yellow Magic Orchestra, who were making fascinating uh, the early sort of or like um, uh, autobahn um, craft work. Cra- yeah craft work and and the, the using sequences and and, and so on and, and yellow magic orchestra was great because they had a drummer Yukihuro Takahashi who was a genius in playing around with these electronic samples but playing live drums over them he was, a, mm. he was an absolute inspiration so this was all evolving the drum kit was becoming a thing in the studio it wasn't about live so much, it was about what could you do with it. You could close mic, you could use gates, you could take EQs and so on. It was just brilliant. So I was totally focused on that. That was my element. I wanted to be a studio drummer. And just about the time I picked to do that, the Lin drum machine came out. Yeah. And that kind of changed the game because the Lin drum machine was exactly what my brother had predicted, which was samples. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't great. And if you heard them on two or three records, at that time then that was it you know you knew that sound mm. so but that entered a period of, of studio drumming where the precision was what mattered <clears throat> accuracy interesting rhythms not loose sloppy playing or mm. jazz playing so yeah. that, that then took me in another direction which got me work with various producers at the time people like david motion who'd done um strawberry switchblade and um red box from the very, very yeah, yeah, yeah. brilliant songs. Yeah. And I came in to work with him as a producer. I played drums on work for uh, Classics Nouveau and also then Bucks Fizz, which was their second album, mm. um, New Beginning, which was actually the end of them, Yeah, which is quite funny. And I played on a few tracks on that album as well. What were the big ones on that, that album? Because I... I well, there was, New Beginning was the, was the single, which did very well. I think it got to about number seven, yeah. maybe six or seven. It had a huge kind of um, Euro, Euro-African Euro chorus singing a, 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 you know, a big sort of Mamba Mamba Sera. Do, 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 do. It was big, lots of drummers on, on top of the pops, you know, about five drummers on
real. Well, it was outstanding. Pop, pops, just yeah, it was, it was dazzling. It was dazzling, yeah. and it was it was really amazing because that was a great time making British pop records. Everyone was turning it into um, like um, it was an aesthetic pursuit almost. You know, they were trying to get the right the right snare, but not too much. So they were the right kind of coating, the right mix of that. With I mean, one of the bands I really loved at that time who I thought were brilliant was Japan because they mm. evolved from being a sort of punk um, New York Dolls type thing they even taken their names I think from the New York Dolls and they then evolved into this quite, quite unique actually it wasn't EDM it was like artistic electronic music but it was beautiful so they were a fascinating band to watch mm. um, Buggles I think too were, were amazing because of the Trevor Horn um, and Jeff Downs although they wanted to be part of, of Yes they made their own stab, they were making their own songs and sounds. Mm. So it was a fascinating time. So all of that was evolving and I was trying to be in the middle of it as much as possible. And so how did um, drumming for uh, Morrissey come around? Okay, well, so from those, lots of sessions like that, lots of recording sessions where I was playing, that sort of thing, I got signed with a band called A Pair of Blue Eyes. We were signed to the CBS by Muff Winwood. Mm. Um, and... It was very exciting. We got signed, so that name rings a bell. Pair of blue eyes is, is no, it's um, Muff Winwood. Muff Winwood. He's head of a, he was to, head of A and R. Was he related to Stevie? Yeah, he was his right. brother, right. and he was he was head of A and R at EMI, and um, he signed us. But I think it was one of his um, uh, colleagues who actually signed us, Lincoln, Lincoln Elias, and he's That's a name. Isn't yeah, it? it's That's a, a great, great name. name, great character. He had signed up. Um, Terence Trent Darby mm -hmm. who was expected to be this fantastic and phenomenal star uh, to equal Prince who was all the rage then uh, in his in his prime mm -hmm. moment um, so he was signing up this guy Lincoln was signing up bands that sounded good to him and what we had going for us was a lyricist and singer who was using very great sort of English poetry um, you know in his own his own poetry set in this sort of high-pitched voice the soprano and, but it had a funky background to it. So it wasn't Ian Drury and the Blockheads. It wasn't that dirty. It would just have very, very quite sort of funky, poppy feel. Mm. And it was great. So I went on holiday for two weeks, came back, and we'd been dropped. Oh. So that shit. But one of the people who came in to mix the first single, because obviously we were still going to put a record out, was Stephen Street, who had been doing mixes at Ireland's Shelter Studios mm. and for the, the Smiths. And he heard my drumming and he. he um, he went, I remember, he, he kept trying to say, where's the click track on this? Uh, he kept sort of muting all the tracks to find it. And uh, I think it was Steve Bush, the singer in the band, said, well, there isn't one. You know, well, how's he keeping in time? Well, he isn't, he's, he's great, you know, he keeps solid time. Goes back to the, you know, Casey and the Sunshine. Mm. Um, so he was really impressed with that. So he then got in touch with me later on after the Smith split up. He got in touch pretty much immediately, I think and said, would you like to play drums for Morrissey's solo album? I've sent him some songs and I think we could be recording in September of 87. Mm. Um, that's how it started. Yeah. So that was wonderful. I mean, it was just awesome. Yeah, I mean, the, the, those albums, the, the, they're, there are no weak links in, in those albums. I, I don't think so. No? I mean, in Viva Hate, uh, I know we, we recorded Viva Hate very quickly. Um, it was really in about four months. Then we came back in the new year of 88 to record B-sides to Every Day is Like Sunday. Mm. And uh, 
we did these B-sides and they were brilliant. You know, we were all playing live in the band. So Stephen was on bass, Vinny was on guitar, yeah. I was on the drums and Morrissey was singing. It sounded brilliant. It sounded like a really good live band. Mm. Um, but then it sort of got interrupted. Morrissey wanted to take remnants of the Smiths on tour with him. We did a gig in Wolverhampton, I think, and um, recorded uh, Last of the International, Last of the Famous International Playboys with them. So I was out of the picture, but then I came back in again for Boner Drag, mm. and then back in again for Kill Uncle, yeah. and a whole host of singles as well. So, the, and also what's what's really apparent in that is that the 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 drumming is quite at the forefront of that. You know, there's there's a lot of, uh, but not being kind of overpowering. There's just a lot. You know, um, I, I, you know, I mean, every day is like Sunday. Yeah, night, there's d- a lot d- going d- on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and our Frank. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't mind if you forget me. You know, something oh, like God, that, yeah, yeah. It's well, that, well, there was another single that was put out also as an album track on the American version of Fever Hate called Hairdresser on Fire. Yeah, yeah. Which is just, I'm there's, told, just you can explode. There's okay. loads of yeah. really fast snare <laughs> kind of... That's right, really weird sort of stuff. And I just thought, well, this is good because it's sort of a bit like some nut doing this to the hair. That's what I started to think about. Anyway, I think it worked really well. seemed like a good fit mm. uh, and I came back and did more of it on, on Boner Dragon more of it on Kill Uncle I was particularly Mute Witness as well Mute Witness yeah, yeah. yeah. that Mute was Clive Langer's uh, music yeah. but yeah I spent a lot of time on that especially with the snares and the, yeah, absolutely. the middle section um, one of the tracks of Viva Hate I, I really was very proud of was um, Late Night Maudlin Street mm. which had a drum break halfway through that ran it was a kind of half time samba thing mm. um, but it, 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 it sounded Brilliant, I was really, really proud of it. given free reign to do yeah. what you, you, you yeah. wanted there. I mean, Steve and Morrissey had an idea. They, they'd been listening to, I think it was The Hissing of Summer Lawns, so that was um, uh, Joni Mitchell's album from the, it was, it was the follow-up to Court and Spark, I think, mm. and it was, it was just beautiful, it's a beautiful album, but what they wanted was this sort of, um, sort of loose time drumming, something a bit jazzy. They didn't want to say, use the word jazz, because it was the wrong word, but it was something very loose and open, and mm. that's kind of what I did. And yeah. um, the the trick was, I just kept I hit the drums very hard, which which was a, a you know, a bonzo trick really. He just used to hit everything really hard and make sure that everything could be heard. You know, mm. so everything comes through. Yeah. Um. So it wasn't. I didn't want to follow what was indie pop drumming at that point, which was quite loose and floppy. I thought mm. it had to be as hard as possible but still sound poppy yeah so not sound heavy or not sound heavy metalish because yeah. we were still pre um nirvana at that point yeah 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 i suppose there's that that intricate 
nature to it as well. I mean, lots of really tight snare. Yeah. And, um, I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking through tracks, so I would work, work out where, where I could put things that would accentuate mm. uh, stuff. Um, and I think things like Suede Head, you know, which is a sort of seat of pants, really, that the drumming, but it, it's, it's very forward. Mm. Um, it comes out of the mix for you. And, uh, you know, the opening lines are da 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 stuff like that, just things that you pick up along the way, you know, ideas to bring in songs. Yeah. As a tune, it's got this just feeling of yeah. dark foreboding, yeah. Yeah. and and it never that that's what I think it almost doesn't resolve. Mm. You know, you feel like if it was a, a piece of um, you know dance music in a club, yeah. you'd almost get disappointed because yes. it never really gets... it never quite quite breaks out but yeah. that's the tension that's and then it, it just it just does and then it stops yeah, again right, and yeah. Um, yeah I think it's it's all the more powerful for that really November spawned a monster, and yeah. uh, Ouija board. November's, November's got a, a real funk to it yeah, as well, yeah. isn't it? It's well, a I, real I, swing. At, at the time, I was also programming the keyboards on those records, oh, so right. I was using early sequences, Logic Notator, and uh, I would uh, Clive would play the, the piano parts in, and I'd arrange the thing for the song, and then I'd use a, a rhythm, you know, just a sort of hi hat sequence, a hi hat, and I remember putting down a, a basic track. And then after all this stuff had gone on, the guitars and everything, it just like, whoa, it sounds brilliant. So I then went and did another tape, and that's the one that has all the weird fills on it and everything. But what mm. I'm actually doing is I'm playing... It, the, the gate is opening because of the sequence I've written, which is... Which is square. I'm playing the higher as well.
Shuffling that, yeah, ever so slightly to get that offset, yeah, and uh, that really worked well. And Andy was playing bass on it, and he just and you've got that doom, yeah, that yeah, that that's great. Um, Andy was doing something that Kevin was as well. That's Andy, yeah. So, so yeah. it just Fantastic feels like piece. it's kind of yeah, yeah. It's it's all it's over the place. There's a lot of movement. There. Yeah, there is. Yeah, tons of movement. So there were some great tracks there. Um, you know, and things that that, that uh, were great, which didn't make it on the album, things like um, Ophony, which I really liked, the version with the drums in. Uh, he's, he's subsequently released them as unreleased tracks, but and there was another one called um, Striptease with a Difference, which I thought was excellent. Oh, I don't um, know that one. Yes. Yeah, Bending the rules of the late night card game. But again, the drumming's really s- sort of... It's brilliant song, um, but they weren't on the album. Um, so there were, there were quite a few tracks from on Kill Uncle, uh, which were spillovers. But there were also quite a few that never made it to Boner Drag. So Boner Drag, my, my love life. So did you play on that? That was one of the last singles I played on. Yes, yeah. I played drums on that. Yeah, that was yeah. beautiful. Yeah, it's lovely. Chrissy Hind. Yeah, she was singing yeah. on that. Yeah, that was that was just beautiful. Yeah. I had that. I had that on cassette. And then it broke, and so I had to take the cassette apart and then tape, <laughs> yeah, tape it up, and then I, you know, it, it, it survived. young it looked like a simple thing but as I got into it I realized it was fantastically complicated and then I, I, I had a brain aneurysm you know when I when I reached the point where not only was this wildly complicated and these individual limbs can go off and do separate stuff but that also you had music to take in as well mm. so it was like I'm nowhere you know I'm this is all I'm doing is focusing on this groove thing and in fact that's not that's almost like only the beginning you know yeah. it's like it's like the it's like the lowest possible entry point mm. then the thing was to turn all that technique into something that could then be applied and then say well where could you use that and actually have a sound that people could define as yours yeah um and that was always the frustration i think was that i wasn't in a band long enough apart from a pair of blue eyes but it would actually been had hits because mm. i think if you had hits as in a band then you are likely to be seen as part of the hit maker yeah, in, yeah. in the Morrissey situation and subsequent work as well um, it was like 
people knew who I was from what I played on, but it wasn't, you know, if I'd been on top of the pops. I did actually play with Jim Diamond once, who uh, had a hit with, Well, I should have known better. Oh, yeah, yeah. In 1983, and that was, uh, I was on telly with that a few a few times. Um, but, you know, it's like, oh, boy. It, if you were seen as part of a group, then the likelihood is you probably would be able to make it. Mm. Um, so there was a lack of... Um, Profile, which frustrated me a little bit, mm. because I realised I would have got more work had I been seen more. But also, I was quite a retiring character, and I loved the studio so much yeah. that to me that felt like it was almost like a double imprisonment. Enough that you were behind the drums, but then to want to enclose yourself in the studio and focus on these things almost looked like isolation, mm. um, addictive behaviour, almost in a way, I suppose. Yeah. So, well, I think the advice I'd have given my younger self would be if you're going to do this get smart and wake up to what you need to do you've got to break out of the cozy Richmond upon Thames academic environment that you've grown up in and you've got to seek out proper tuition you've got to understand music and you've got to play really well but at the same time you you can't let that trammel your personality mm. and it meant challenging virtually everything that my parents had stood for uh, and were a part of. So it was very, very, I think to have got that advice then would have been, oh God, that sounds like, I may well have stopped. Mm. I thought, well, I perhaps I should do something else. I don't think I would have done, Yeah. but it would have been that. If you're going to be serious, get in it now so you can be ahead of the game and hang around with musicians and see it as a craft, not as something that you want to do because you don't want to do other academic subjects and whatever you can do try and get into college music college mm. rather than doing it as part of an, an, another degree yeah that's the sort of thing I'd have told myself but I was a very um, shy and quite um, hidebound character very anxious full of anxiety and nerves dreadful nerves mm. um, so it's possible that I wouldn't have seen it do um, you think that might have been um helped or exacerbated by the fact that you that, that as a drummer you are behind you have a barrier you've got a bit of a barrier well I think that might explain why it's easier to be on stage behind a kit hmm. um, definitely for me I mean I'm actually okay now not behind a kit but I, I used to be that was a great place to hide hmm. um, I had the, the great fortune I had a girlfriend at the time and their, and her parents were very interested in helping me they helped me buy my first drum kit which in a way, my mum and dad sort of saw this separation occurring, that their son was almost being, in their eyes, kind of abducted by another family. And it was horrifying. Mm. But actually, these people were much more sensitive. They were musicians. They liked to play. Music would also... So I kind of went there and practised, and I was given free reign. Mm. They were very, very lovely, and they helped me enormously. Um, but it, I know it hurt my mum and dad at the time. That's when you're young, you know, you can't really help it. No, I, I think the other thing is that I wouldn't have allowed... I said, learn everything you can about music. Don't stop, you know. Just learn as much as you can. Yeah. By the way, I loved my mum and dad enormously, and my brothers too. Mm, yeah. It's just one of those tension elements that, you know, they didn't fully understand. I remember my mum saying at one point, well, this is obviously what you want to do. We don't understand it. But if it's what you want to do, then you have our blessing. So it was cool. Very but it's horrible to go through that. Yeah, yeah. For them, it's a terrifying time, the 60s and the 70s, because mm. they'd seen some of their offspring go off the rails a little bit, and mm. you know, they didn't want the same thing to happen to me. Yeah. But it was quite tricky. Yeah.
Thank you very much. That's my pleasure. Thanks very much to Andy for being such a great guest on the podcast and participant in the Flashbang Wallop project. Uh, you can view his portrait at the website, which is flashwallop.co.uk. And I just checked the piece of music Grocer Jack, excerpt from a teenage opera, is by Keith West. Uh, I just played it today for the first time in full. And it's a belter. It's really good. It sounded, from when Andy was singing it, it sounded like a kid's nursery rhyme or something like that. And there are children involved in the recording, but it's a really cracking piece of 60s music. It's really worth listening to. Um, Anyway, thanks again to Andy, and we'll see you next time for the next episode of Flash Bang Wallop, The Interviews. (laughs) 